Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, an audio digest of the best of the week's stories from print and podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy, and on our menu today, how and how much to tax the rich. The next express beauty trend, Botox to go, and putting the morals back into McDonald's. But first, our cover story. As extreme weather events get more common and political pressure grows to act on climate change, the private sector is waking up. Investors are prodding firms to go greener, but our cover story predicted that the world is in for a rude awakening about the intentions of big oil. Demand for oil is rising, and the energy industry in America and globally is planning multi-trillion dollar investments to satisfy it. No firm embodies this strategy better than ExxonMobil, the giant that rivals admire and green activists love to hate. As our briefing explains, it plans to pump 25% more oil and gas in 2025 than in 2017. If the rest of the industry pursues even modest growth, the consequence for the climate could be disastrous. Its plans are proof that the market alone won't solve climate change. For now, worldwide demand for oil is growing by 1-2% to a year, similar to the average over the past five decades. However much the majors are vilified by climate warriors, many of whom drive cars and take planes, it is not just legal for them to maximise profits, it is also a requirement that shareholders can enforce. We warned it would be foolish to place all our hopes in the next green innovation or in the wisdom of the courts. Global investment in renewables at $300 billion a year is dwarfed by what is being committed to fossil fuels. Few big investment groups have dumped the shares of big energy firms. Despite much publicity, oil companies' recent commitments to green investors remain modest. In June, a federal judge in California ruled that climate change was a matter for Congress and diplomacy, not judges. So the burden falls on governments, and we argued that there's a middle way and one that won't scare off core voters. The best policy, in America and beyond, is to tax carbon emissions, which ExxonMobil backs. The Gilets jaunes in France show how hard that will be. Work will be needed on designing policies that can command popular support by giving the cash raised back to the public in the form of offsetting tax cuts. The fossil fuel industry would get smaller, government would not get bigger, and businesses would be free to adapt as they see fit, including even ExxonMobil. And you can read more about ExxonMobil's gamble on growth in the briefing in this week's issue of The Economist, available online and all good newsstands. And if you're not yet a subscriber, you can get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12 by visiting economist.com slash radio offer. Now, the world may be going up in smoke, but our guest on the latest episode of Babbage 
reminded us of just how insignificant we are in the very grand scheme of things. Joe Dunkley is Professor of Physics at Princeton University and author of Our Universe, An Astronomer's Guide. I'm looking for evidence of this very energetic expansion of the universe in the earliest moments. And I'm looking for these things called gravitational waves. They're ripples, space-time itself rippling as this first moment of the Big Bang happened. We're actually looking back as far as you can look out into the universe. You look out into space and you see back in time. The further you look, the further back in time you see because light has to get to you. And I look at the light that's been traveling the longest from actually just after the Big Bang itself, about 14 billion years. It's been around since before there were any stars or any galaxies. It's this kind of faint glow from the Big Bang itself. If you find yourself craving a bit of that welcome perspective, why don't you try our new daily current affairs podcast? It's called The Intelligence, and every weekday we bring you a global take on the stories shaping our world. As the trial of El Chapo, a Mexican drug lord, got underway in New York last week, our report examined how the proceedings are being seen from back home. Tom Wainwright, our former Mexico correspondent and author of Narconomics, How to Run a Drug Cartel, introduced our host Jason Palmer to the Narco Corridos, ballads in praise of the drug barons. There's one about El Chapo, which literally means kind of a short guy. There's one about him that says, from his feet up to his head, he's a little short in stature, but from his head up to the heavens is how I calculate his height, for he is a giant among giants. So, so this is just almost like standard sort of hero-making stuff, Robin Hood-type stuff, right, where the, the, the notionally bad are, are celebrated in song. That's right. And it's an example of how the cartels actually care quite a lot about PR and, and almost a kind of corporate social responsibility in some ways. It's completely cynical, but El Chapo is said to have spent a lot of money on things like social housing projects in Sinaloa. There's even a kind of primitive social security system. And they do this in order to get local people to support them, because the more popular support they have, the less chance there is of them being reported to the authorities. Not all the very wealthy are so generous. Our big debate on the latest instalment of The Economist Asks asked how and how much to tax the rich. My guests were Henry Kerr, our economics editor, and Rutger Bregman, a Dutch historian whose panel appearance telling Davos elites to pay more taxes went viral. Although many people agree the rich could pay more, there's less agreement on how. So I asked Rutger how his model might work. I think we need inheritance taxes, wealth taxes, higher top marginal taxes for Gosh, on income. Gosh, you haven't met a tax you don't uh, like, have you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we need them all. I love them all. <laughs> they're, they're all very dear to me. Now, um, when you talk about a top marginal tax rate, you got to remember that actually the it works as a sort of a maximum salary. So if you have a top marginal tax rate of 91%, uh, employers will simply stop giving those salaries to their employees and spread their wealth around more equally. This is this is what the, the effect in the 50s and the 60s was. And that's also why tax rates do not only have an effect on inequality after redistribution, but also before it. And you can hear our Henry Kerr's reply to that and the full debate in The Economist Asks. 
If having paid your taxes in full, you're wondering how to spend what might be left, a piece in the United States section of this week's paper examined the latest express beauty trend. You can change someone's life with a bit of lip, says Dr. Alexander Blinsky. His practice, which feels more like a cross between a cupcake shop and a soul cycle studio than a place where people willingly go to let needles full of neurotoxins gently paralyse the muscles in their faces, is one of a growing number of establishments in America aimed at making injectable cosmetic treatments seem less clinical. Lips are just the start of a menu of services. Insta-ready cheeks are another popular treatment among those who want a more influencer-worthy contour to their jowls. They are achieved with a dose of an injectable filler and cost just over $1,000. A $2,000 treatment helps those who wish to minimise their underarm sweat production in ways that the humble antiperspirant has yet to master. And the clientele is not limited to influence-hungry Instagrammers. Oh, no. Clients are mostly millennials in search of a plumper pout, but also include daughters who bring their mothers, wives who bring their husbands, Wall Street bankers keen to banish an angry-looking furrowed brow, or drag queens in search of more dramatic cheeks. Improving a corporate image involves more than a little nip and tuck. In the business section, our Bartleby columnist recounted the mission of one man, Bob Langett, to put the morals back into McDonald's. In 1988, he took a temporary assignment managing a Ferrari over polystyrene clamshells in which the company's burgers were served and which were being damned for their contribution to America's litter problem. That turned into a 25-year career. He has since left the firm, dealing with the chain's various negative external effects. The company didn't always help itself. In the 1990s, it sued two Greenpeace activists for producing leaflets about its practices. The ensuing McLibel trial gave the claims worldwide publicity and was described as the world's biggest corporate PR disaster. Slowly but surely, Langett managed to serve a side of ethics with the Big Macs. Shaving one inch off the napkins saved three million pounds of paper annually, for example, but few consumers noticed. Another victory was persuading a supplier to phase out the use of gestation stalls for sows, which make it impossible for the animals to move. The catch is that morals have a way of moving with the times. The rise of veganism amid doubts about the health effects of eating meat have given McDonald's new worries. Was all the effort worth it? It seems likely that many of the people who care a lot about these issues would never eat a fast food burger in the first place. But Mr Langert did more than most to reduce environmental waste and animal cruelty. A decent career record for an obviously decent man. We leave you this week with a review from our Books and Arts section. In Salt on Your Tongue, Women in the Sea, Charlotte Runcie set out to reclaim the waters for the women who were left behind on the shore. By long tradition, men and women experience the sea in different ways. Men set out on it, looking for land, gold, adventure. Women stay on shore, waiting and worrying. Men scoop up shoals of fish or harpoon great whales. Women, wrapped in shawls and with hands rubbed raw, gut and fillet, preserve and sell whatever the seafarers bring in. Ancient myths remind us of who really commands the waves. 
Her chapter headings are the names of the seven Pleiades, the stars, all girls, most variously abused by gods, whose rising told Greek sailors when to embark. The moon, female in most cultures, controls the tides. The goddess Athena sorted out the waves for Odysseus. Our Lady, star of the sea, smooths it for all who invoke her. The sea is also inhabited by mysterious, terrifying or bewitching women. Sirens sing men towards doom on their rock. Scylla, her teeth full of black death, writhes in her whirlpool. Underwater caves hide Sycorax, Caliban's mother, and the awful progenitrix of Grendel in Beowulf. Mermaids, selkies, and naiads, all alluring in their beauty, draw sailors down to the depths. When men sail, what they fear is often females who know the sea better. That's the end of this week's tasting menu, but there are many more such treasures in the depths of Economist.com or indeed from Economist Radio on your podcast app. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do leave us a review and rate us. We like to see that. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. The Economist. 